hello. Welcome to Novel Finds, the podcast where we talk about your favorite books, our favorite books, and everything in between. Hi, I'm Julia, and today we have an amazing author chat with the one and only Jennifer L. Armentrout. How are you doing today? Good, good. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I am thrilled to have you. Uh, so before we kind of dive into your most recent book that came out, I have a warm-up question for you. You have written a ton of books. If you could live anywhere in any of them, where would you want to be? Oh gosh, that's such a hard question because a lot of my paranormal and fantasy worlds, I don't know. I wouldn't last very long in them. I think um, I, I would end up um, not not making it. But I, I think I would probably have to say um, the flesh and fire um, mm. world, mainly because there are more um, draken, which are just dragons. Uh, and I, I think that would be kind of cool to live in a world where <laughs> they Absolutely. exist. Absolutely. And just the baby dragons. Yes, mainly for that reason. You know, it's a little bit harder for them to catch you on fire. So I think that's that's a bonus. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, that's a really good reason. Um, for a second. Um, with that in mind, um, your most recent book that came out is A Fire in the Flesh. Um, could you give us a summary of the book and a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so Fire in the Flesh is the third book in the series, and the series is a is a prequel to the Blood and Ash world. And I, I kind of came up with the idea once I was getting to that point in that series, and I realized that this was a pretty big story that I felt was better shown instead of told. Because if I was to, to try to condense the backstory um, into Blood and Ash, it would have been like this giant info dump. <laughs> <laughs> that mm-hmm. lacked a lot of the substance and like the emotion. Um, so that is where the series kind of started. Um, this is the book where you start to see a lot of the big reveals, not only just for Flesh and Fire, but for the Burnash, where you start to realize why things are the way they are. Um, and, and then a couple of things, like there's a lot of answers that I think readers have been waiting for that they're going to get in this book. But there's also, I think, quite a bit of reveals that people may not have expected um, that they're going to start to see. And, you know, writing fantasy is something that, you know, I've always wanted to do. But, it, you know, it's I, I wrote paranormal, contemporary, thriller, suspense um, before that. And even what they would call now, like um, contemporary fantasy, it used to be called urban fantasy back in the day. Um, that just means it's fantasy that takes place in our current world, you know, as the, as the backdrop of the world. I, they don't call it that anymore. I think they, like, I'm not sure if they call it contemporary fantasy, but I had written all that. And, um, but I always been drawn to like the epic fantasy, like, you know, it's a world that is not familiar to our own, but it took a long time for me to kind of work up the nerve to write that, um, mainly because that's a different ballpark. You're creating everything, not just the world itself, the characters. Um, and that was a, a bit daunting. So, you know, I've been writing for a while and, you know, and have a lot of books published, but it, it took me a bit to get the courage to kind of dive in and write 
write these books. Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, with that in mind, though, like when you're creating an epic fantasy world, where do you where do you stop? Where do you start? Like, here's an easy question. How do you come up with the fantasy names? Oh, God, that's like, <laughs> that is like the hardest part <laughs> because you can't have a bob, right? You can't have a bob just hanging yeah. out. Yeah world um names are so so hard because there's actual like generator sites out there that you can use kind of like inspiration or you know they, i guess that can kind of point you in like a right direction one of them has like a list of fantasy names for anything you can think of but when you use it and say you're looking for like dragon names right it, it'll give you the most blatant dragon names it'll be like the name would be like spitfire and you're like okay that's not what i'm for <laughs> you know you just you give up you're like well that's not gonna work um and it, it, i was really excited when i found um the website because it is hard coming up with like like secondary names or of, and i hate to use the word like throwaway characters but characters mm-hmm. that are not in the story for long term um and you go to that site and the names are just hilarious sometimes so what i typically do is i will look at like old names um, that aren't typically in use. You know, you just kind of like Google old names or you can even use names that are like, that were like used maybe more so in like uh, Grecian times, you know, times of the Roman empire. Um, And then I take those names and I often will spell them as they're pronounced. (laughs) So I will, and believe it or not, that gives you the best fantasy name. It's just, (laughs) it as it's pronounced um and, and you know in towns um because a lot of my stuff has uh, you know greek inspiration like greek myths so towns and stuff i will pull from you know uh mm-hmm. like greek towns or towns from mythology but it is that is one of the most difficult things is is fantasy names because even after writing so many books naming characters in general is sometimes <laughs> difficult but then knowing that you have to put kind of a fantasy spell, you know, twist on it, it, it can get hard and it can get really time consuming. Yeah. You can put a lot of time looking for names. I, I can imagine. Do you have one that you're like most proud of? Um, I think I always have been a little bit proud of um, uh, Cass's name, partly because like, you know, his middle name has a, has a kind of a hint in it <laughs> mm. yeah, um, that people, once they read a fire in the flesh, they, they actually probably will figure that out. Um, and also because I've always been a huge fan of supernatural and I always try to work references of supernatural into my books. Fantasy makes it a lot more difficult. Um, but Cass, it is spelled different, um, Castile, but he's named mm-hmm. after Castile from Supernatural. But again, it, their names are spelled differently. I love that so yeah. much. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Um, so in A Fire in the Flesh, do you have a favorite line or section from that? And do you want to share that with, with our audience? Um, I don't really, it's so hard for me to pick like favorite. Yeah or favorite sections. Um, I think I could tell you like my, one of my favorite parts of the book comes, um, it's between Ash and uh, Sarah at what she calls her lake, because it's a, it's a real like soul bearing moment where things are looking very bleak. And um, what 
Ash says, um, I always knew um, that, you know, what he was going to say. And I would say, but it is a huge, huge spoiler. And then, <laughs> yeah. And then the part that comes after that, where um, some really big, again, reveals that I don't think people will be expecting um, happens at that point. And those were like my favorite parts. I wish I knew the chapters off the top of my head, but um, those are my favorite parts. It's basically from the lake scene and then the very next chapter. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. Oh, that's so exciting. Especially because like everyone is reading the book right now. Like yeah. it came out less than a week ago at this point. Yeah. And yeah. So that's re- how are you relieved? How do you feel whenever a book is finally published? You know, it's always like, you know, you're excited because the book is finally out there. Um, and then you don't have to always worry so much about like spoiling things. Yeah. I'm terrible with that. Um, because I'm somebody that spoilers don't really bother. So, but I have to keep remembering, but also it's hard because like when the book comes out, you're actually a book ahead in writing. And Mm -hmm. so you're talking about it. You have to stop sometimes and be like, wait, which book is that in? (laughs) You know, it may not even be in that book. Um, but yeah, there's excitement. There's always nerves, right? No matter how many times you have a book come out, I do think there's still a level of anxiety regarding the release. Um, you know, just, you know, a lot of things are things you can't control. Like, oh, I hope, um, none of the websites have a glitch, right. And, you know, the book isn't available or something happens with shipping and Mm -hmm. the book stop here, but not there. But, you know, and you always hope that, you know, people perceive what you intended. So there's always that little bit of nerves, but mostly it's just exciting. It's it's kind of like relief, like it's finally out. Yes. And you're working on your next one. Mm. Yes. Um, How is that going? What is your favorite part about drafting like the next book? I, you know, I think there's always this excitement when you're drafting, even when it's a part of a series, right? It still feels like you're starting anew. <laughs> and it's like, and I feel like when it's a first first draft or at the beginning of a first draft, there is this like, I can do anything <laughs> with this, even if you can't, <laughs> which you learn at some point during the writing process where you're like, oh, wait, I can't go in that direction. <laughs> that would be a plot hole. Um, but I still think that's the most exciting when you first get started and you, it's kind of all new. Um, but you know, it's hard, especially when you're like four books into a series, but in reality, you're actually eight books or nine books into a series. Yeah. And there's a lot that you've introduced, a lot that you have to remember, and even more that you've forgotten because your brain can only hold so much. So there is that it does get more complicated at that point in writing because you have to take, you know, all the other books, all the other world building into consideration. And sometimes when you're doing your first draft, you realize like maybe like what you planned in terms of how events happen can't happen the way you planned because it doesn't really flow well that way. So in this stage of writing, there's a whole lot of just like moving scenes around, rewriting, a ton of rewriting until you get it just right. And usually for me, that happens a lot in the first half in the middle of the book. 
is where I will do a ton of rewriting. Um, and then from that point on, I'm, you know, always confident in how it flows. But, you know, I feel like you know, the, the first part and the middle part are like, you know, they're really, obviously every section of the book is important, but it's like, you gotta, you gotta make sure that first half <laughs> keeps people's like attention, keeps them excited and um, keeps them reading. And so there's a lot of work it's spent in that. Definitely. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, I do not need you. Actually, I mean, this month is National Novel Writing Month. So there's a lot of people that are going down that journey. Have you ever done that? Like, have you ever considered Yeah, I've done that? NaNo a couple of times. Um, I probably, I mean, I've written some books um, during NaNo. I, it's just, unfortunately, like, I, that whenever November rolls around, I'm like, never like at a point in a book or starting a book that it works out. And I feel like, and now granted, you don't have to obviously be starting a new book to do nano, but for me, that's what I like about it because, you know, there's that, mm-hmm. you know, it helps better with like goal, goal orientation. Um, so I, every year I'm kind of like, damn, I hope I can work this schedule. So I'm starting a book in November because for me, that's how it works for me. But, um, yeah, I've done it before. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Do you have any advice for people that have started for the very first time? If you're starting for the very first time, one of the hardest things to do is not to self edit. And, you know, a lot of writers who are starting out, they never end up finishing because, you know, they're like, oh, this, this doesn't make sense. This isn't good. This is, you know, it needs to be better. I need to fix this. And then what happens is you end up spinning your heels until you give up and you either, you know, usually what happens is they give up and then they start another book. And then the same thing happens because Mm -hmm. a lot of it is, you know, it's like performance anxiety. It's, you know, is this good enough? But the thing is you have to get, or they're worried that like the first draft draft is crap, right? That's always the biggest, you know, this is crappy, but here's the thing. Your first draft is meant to be crappy. And one of the hardest things is just is to tell yourself to stop editing, stop going back, get that first draft out, finish it because you can't edit a blank page, but you can edit crap. You can fix that. And it's okay to have crap, right? All of us have had first drafts that are laughable, that are just, I mean, I can't, shit, to this day, I still have sections sometimes and I turn, look, I turn this into the editor sometimes. Where I'll just be like, kissing happens here. I'll write and I'll put a little parentheses. I'll write it in edits, and mainly that's like usually happens like when you are like really getting down to deadline, and you're like, I am not in the headspace to write like this gloriously sexy scene or something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're gonna have to come back to that. I have a friend whose first draft is like mostly just dialogue. She pretty which I would just I don't even know how she does it. Because I have to build out everything and make the dialogue fit right with the scene. But she writes mostly her first drafts are just dialogue. And then she goes back on the second draft and then flushes, flushes everything out. So it, it's that's the best advice for me to give to someone is let it, you have to get it out. It's okay mm-hmm. if it sucks. It's okay if it does suck. You can fix that. But if you keep stopping and starting a new one, you're going to probably continuously do that. Um, and because a lot of times, because sometimes it is, I think, just a, just scary to realize that you're actually writing a book possibly for publication. 
because mm-hmm. that changes it. This is, you're not just writing for fun. You're not just writing to entertain yourself. You're writing with the potential to share with the world and that can overwhelm you and you may not even realize it. Um, so I think just write that first draft, get it done. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, can you take us through your journey to becoming published? Yeah, my journey was um, very kind of unorthodox for that time um, when I started, you know, or different from when I started. Um, so I was first published back in 2011. And at that time, self-publishing, for example, or small presses were still very frowned upon in the industry. Uh, you could probably name like two known self-pubbed authors um, that had found any amount of, you know, and I say in quotations marks success, because I do believe success is different for everybody. Everybody has their own definition of that. Um, And so I started then and I had gone the route of trying to get an agent because I was writing young adult. And um, I had gotten like rejection after rejection. And during that time, of doing that, I had submitted to a small press that was pretty new and they had made an offer on the book. And I decided to, you know, give him a shot because I was like, why not? Like, you know, and meanwhile, I'm going to start another book. I'm going to write and still, you know, try to somewhat go, you know, the traditional route. Um, So that was probably like 2009, 2010. And by the time my first book came out, Half-Blood in, I believe, October of 2011, excuse me, I did land an agent. That was after about 150 some rejections. <laughs> that is not, I still wow. have, every, yeah, I still have every single one of them in my email box. And Kevin, my agent had actually rejected me beforehand for a different book. So that's something I feel like new writers keep in mind. Sometimes it's just the book. Like it is not that the book's bad. It's just not a good fit if you want to go the traditional route. So I landed, uh, you know, the agent. And at that time too, I had already signed on with another small press. Um, So first one was Spencer Hill. The second one was, was Entangled. And Entangled was also brand new then. Um, And my agent sold my first YA book to Disney Hyperion. And so, you know, I was, I was writing multiple books at that time. I was just, I mean, I, you know, back then I was probably writing like eight books a year. It was, you know, something I could not. That's that's breakneck. (laughs) It was, it was. And these are not small books. (laughs) These are all like 80 to a hundred and some thousand words. Um, so I, so in the midst of all this, you know, I got my first traditional deal. Um, I had hit, I believe the USA Today bestsellers list for a contemporary that I had with Entangled. And I came up with this idea, which turned out to be wait for you. And, um, I was really excited about it. My agent was really excited about it. And she felt that since, you know, I have a a record of sales, you know, and, some sort of title I've hit. She was pretty confident that we could sell it to like a New York house. And so she took it out on submission um, and agents can take them out on what they call exclusive submissions. And with, when they do that, it's a smaller, more curated list. And so you get responses a lot more quickly. And each publisher that she took it to, because the book was new adult, and this was like the 2012 time, 
they all were like very hesitant because they weren't sure yet what new adult was going to do. They had acquired some authors. They wanted to see how that would work. Um, And they basically wanted me to wait. And after talking to my agent, we both decided that, you know, my gut was telling me that it would not be wise to wait, you know, that, you know, this should happen. I need to do it now. So that was the first book I self-published was Wait For You. Um, The publishers, it went out to publishers in January and February of 2013. Um, I believe it was 2013. And then, but so I I self-published it. And by the first week of April, like a month later, that book was sitting on the number one New York Times list. Like it was one of those things that you can't even recreate that again. <laughs> like it was, it, it was, it was shocking. I mean, you know, I had like that feeling that either this book was was going to do really well or it was going to be really terrible. There will be no in between. <laughs> so from that point. I did, I did a mixture of what they call hybrid publishing, which means I have active contracts with the traditional New York houses, which I think are just four now. And, but I also work with um, smaller presses and every once in a while I self-publish in between. So I have a couple of self-published titles um, because for me that works the best. Like I'm not a person who likes to have you know, all their eggs in one basket, because there are books that I think are better suited for traditional publishing. There are books I think are better suited for indie and then stuff that's better suited for small press. So I kind of had my fingers in everything and everything. And that's works for me. That's not going to work for everyone, obviously. But for me, it helped, especially, you know, in the, in the early part of my career, because I was able to write a lot faster than what publishers were able to keep up with. So it, you know, it, it, I wasn't ever just sitting around waiting for a book to come out a year later. So, and that who me, who I don't like to wait for anything <laughs> that, that worked out perfectly. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. Um, so we are coming a little close to time, but I do have a question that I would like to ask you. Um, in 2015, you were diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa, and I saw on your website that that's something that you do like to ad- advocate for and like teach people about. Can you tell us more about what it is, and do you have a plan for when it starts getting worse? Um, yeah, so I always had like bad eyesight, but I, you know, it just to me it was like, you know, I did have bad eyesight, and. You know, I never liked anybody like messing with my eyes. So I didn't like my eyes to be dilated. Mm. And this is a lesson to people. Let them dilate your eyes <laughs> because that is how they see, you know, the retina. They see all that stuff. And so it had been a very long time um, since I had my eyes dilated because you can refuse to have that done if you're just going to get a prescription. Mm-hmm. And then one time, one day in January of 2015, I was like, oh, the hell, why not? I'll just let them dilate my eyes. And immediately I was at like, um, geez, like my eye doctor. It's like one of those like, you know, shopping mall, like, you know, glass places. Yeah. Yeah. And, and immediately um, the the doctor kind of sat back and he was like, you know, do you have anybody in your family that might have had like early onset of like macular degeneration. And that's typically what you get as you get older, you're, you know, you see the the decline in your vision. And apparently Mm -hmm. that 
happen when you're younger. Um, I hadn't, as far as I know, had anybody that that happened to. And, you know, he kept looking at my eyes and he was just like, you know, I think you need to see a retina specialist. There's something, you know, wrong with your eyes, basically. So he referred me to a retina specialist. But, but I went there. I was just expecting it to be that, you know, you that's what it was. But it turned mm-hmm. out that it was RP um, is what it's abbreviated. And that's RP just really stands for a group of inherent genetic disorders um, that progress in loss of vision, either from the sides or what they call lattice vision, um, where it's like, it's like looking through a lattice. Now mine is from the sides. I'm very, very lucky because my vision loss has been slow. Um, and also it's kind of amazing, like how much your brain compensates for it that like, Mm -hmm. and that's why it took me so long to even realize that I had such restricted vision because it was just little things that I would do unconsciously to like counter that. Um, But I mean, yeah, you know, it it is a disease that progresses. And again, I am so lucky because people who are my age typically have very little vision left. And, you know, I have a decent amount left. You know, obviously I can't drive anymore. It's difficult in certain environments for me to see. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm still, you know, able to like, um, you know, that I have enough vision left that it hasn't become a severe, you know, hindrance. Um, But, uh, you know, I do like to talk about it because I think to a lot of people, there's only the blind and then all people who have to wear glasses and the Mm -hmm. seeing. And they don't realize that there's a huge swath of different degrees of that in between. So that was one thing that, you know, I always do like to educate people on. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, And will you, I mean, when you are no longer able to see, will you continue writing? Will you dictate or what do you think? I've been trying to work with dictating now because I've been told. Um, so I go to the Wilmore Eye Institute at John Hopkins um, is where I go to have like my vision stuff tested. And they mm-hmm. recommend that you start doing dictation when you can still see because it is or still, you know, mostly what, you know, depends on what type of, you know, this disease that you have, because it is hard. Dictation's hard. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's all because you learn how to communicate one way. And it's like learning how to communicate a whole different way. I would think, I mean, just for me personally, I it's it's up there with learning a new language mm-hmm. because I my brain doesn't work in a way where I'm trying to be creative via talking. It's typing, so it's it's been a struggle <laughs> to try to do that. But yeah, I would hope that I would still be able to write, and I would I would do it that way. Yeah, I hope you could too. Also, with all your sexy scenes, oh my god, <laughs> yes. That'd be fun. I know. Um, right? Saying that out loud to be like, make sure like nobody's around you. <laughs> exactly. Oh. Um. So we're coming up to our final question, and um, just whatever comes off the top of your head, or if you want to take a minute or so to like think of it. But we ask everyone that comes on, what is your favorite book? Oh gosh, that is so hard for me to answer. But I would think probably my favorite book that I read or written, actually. You could do either or both. Or I'm gonna do read. Uh, my favorite book that I read. If I had to pick one, I'm gonna have to go all the way back to the 90s. 
and say um, L.J. Smith's The Vampire Diaries. Um, because a lot of people here, youngins don't realize that TV show was based on a book series from the nineties. Um, and the reason why I say that is because it was one of the first books that actually made me want to become a writer. And because I just remember reading that book and being so invested in characters and being, um, completely like emotionally traumatized, even, and, and it was confusing to me because I was like, I know this isn't real. Like, why am I so upset? <laughs> And then, you know, and just to realize that you can create a world like that, right? And make these people so real that you become so invested. There's just something so fascinating to me about that. And that was like pretty much when I knew I wanted to be an author. So that I always say is my favorite book because it, you know, I think propelled me into this to do this as a living. Yeah. Oh, I love you. <laughs> you've watched The Vampire Diaries, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've read, I think, the first book and then watched most of the series. So I was like, oh, yeah. all right. The Secret Circle is probably my favorite of the book series. I was mm. not a fan of that TV show <laughs> just because I was like, wait, what? And I was like, because Cassie, I feel like they switched Bella's character, not Bella. See, that's why. Um, shoot, Elena's character and Cassie's character. Because I think, because Elena, if you read the books, she wasn't a very likable character in the first book. And that was the point, really, I feel like it. But I think because that came right after Twilight, they kind of bellified Elena's character yeah. a little bit. And um, and then Cassie's character in the show was almost more like Elena's character in the books. And so there was like a weird switch there. Um, but, uh, but The Secret Circle mm-hmm. was probably one of my favorites. Yeah, now that you say that, I'm like, yes, I completely yeah, agree with you. Elena's <laughs> character was, there were moments in that first book, but once you read, you understood why. I mean, you know, LJ's mm-hmm. really great at kind of like, you know, taking you through the growth of a character and showing you why that they were like this way. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. I think Elena probably would have been, book Elena would have been hard, I think, to swallow a little bit <laughs> in TV form. Um, Cause I do think they made um, Caroline, you know, became like, well, Caroline was the same way in the books, but the Caroline from the first couple of se- seasons was how Elena. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. Yeah. So I think they kind of like, you know, tamed her down a bit. Or, or like I like to call the bellification. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and made her just more relatable, I think. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, well, do you have any final thoughts, any final things you would like to share? Um, where can people find you? Uh, things like that. Oh, well, first, I would like to say again, thank you for having me on. And I hope that people are enjoying a fire in the flesh. Uh, typically, you can find me either on Facebook or Instagram. Um, if you are a reader of mine, I do have a Facebook group for readers called Jay Landers, but that's mostly where you can find me. Awesome. Amazing. Um, and you I mean, your book just came out. Do you have a yeah. favorite indie shop you want to send everyone to to go get it? Um, there are many that have been amazing. Um, I just did an event last month at the Ripped Bodice in New York City or oh, City, yes. <laughs> Brooklyn. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, that's their new location. And so I would, I would give a shout out to them. Their store is amazing. I love their designs on the wall. Also their bathroom is amazing. It has post-it notes everywhere in the bathroom. So when you're in the bathroom, you can write like a little post-it note and put it on the bathroom wall. 
<laughs> and there's this, when you have a bathroom in there, you're just like, well, I think I'm going to hang out in here for five minutes and, you know, read what's on all the walls. Um, so the Rithabodis. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Maggie actually literally was just there like two days ago. <laughs> it's a cute store. I, I love, was she in the Brooklyn one or the LA one? She's in the Brooklyn one. The Brooklyn one. Um, yeah. I'm, you got to ask her about like the the book designs on the wall. It's like, um, gosh, there's a name for it. But it's like almost like paper mache. Like you take um, pages of the books and you make like flowers. Oh, yeah. The whole wall of the back is like an archway is paper flowers made from books. And it's beautiful. It's I, I'm, I was looking at that like, how can I do that in my house? <laughs> I mean, I can't. I don't have any type of talent in that department. But it, it's so beautiful. Fair enough. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being on, Jennifer. We I really enjoyed talking with you. Um, yeah. And good luck with, with all of your next books that are coming out and dictating. I hope that you have some really steamy scenes coming up. <laughs> Yeah, and just be like talking that out loud. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, we heckin' did it, y'all. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard and want to support the show, share it with your other bookish friends and family members. And if your podcast app has ratings, please take a minute to rate and review the show. I'm off to read the next book in Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events for my monthly Patreon series, A Summary of Unfortunate Events, which is a middle-of-the-pool dive into the series we all know and love. And if you'd like to hear it, subscribe to our Patreon by following the link in the Novel Finds bio on Instagram, which you should totally be following if you're not already. Thanks again for being a novel friend. We'll see y'all next week. Bye!